When Frank Herbert wrote Dune and it was published to the world in 1965, no one could have possibly known that it would become one of the most influential science fiction novels of all time. It's fitting then that when the developers of Westwood Studios made their own game in 1992 set in the world created by Frank Herbert's seminal novel, that they had no idea that they were creating a game that would still influence developers 30 years later. Maybe there's just something about Dune, guys. Today, we're going to look at the genre-defining real-time strategy title Dune 2, originally published for DOS in 1992. That's a lot of twos. So stick around and join us as we sample the spice on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and or good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 118th episode of our video game nostalgia slash history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we will tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It could be a game, a person, a console, just something relevant to this week. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about it, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we are looking back at Dune 2, The Building of a Dynasty, a game that was released for DOS computers in December of 1992. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is absolutely addicted to the spice. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's the deal with the spice, man? It's just nice, man. Spice is nice. Spice is nice. Just gives you that good feel, you know? It does. Oh, yeah. It makes the world go round. Yes, indeed. And also your brain. Yeah, that is very true. Uh, So Dune, uh, based on a book, have you experienced either the book or the game? I have heard of them. I have not played or seen the movie or read the book. None of none of that. But I am aware of the existence of Dune. So you are going in blind. Oh, yeah. You know it exists, but you don't know anything about it. Uh, I know there's spice. You know there's spice. Yes. What else do you know? Uh, That there's going to be a Dune 2 movie. That is true. There will be a Dune 2 movie, yes. Anything uh, else that you know about it? It, it? There's a desert planet. Very true. Anything else? Uh, There's a space emperor. Yeah. Huh. Uh, you didn't really get the thing I thought you'd get, because that's what most people know it for. Um. Yeah, I don't know. What, what, what's the uh, thing? Giant sandworms. See, I wasn't a hundred percent confident that that was Dune, so I didn't want to say it and be wrong. Oh, but it's like one of the coolest parts about Arrakis, the planet, the desert planet. See, I, I thought I, they were called uh, the Alaskan bullworms, but I, you know, I get them confused <laughs> all the time. All right. Well, I, I, 
I may have written some of this differently if I had known you had known nothing about this, but we're going to fill it in as best we can. But before we get to that, what are you playing? Well, Dave, this week has seen some good old Rocket League, the classic RuneScape, a little bit of Halo Infinite, a little bit of Oxygen Not Included, and quite a bit of Knights of the Old Republic. Nice. How about yourself? Well, we all just came off of long weekends since it's the week after Thanksgiving, so a lot of free time in there. So Rocket League. That's it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Rocket League. Been playing a lot of the new Call of Duty Warzone. Don't know why I got into that. Those games usually aren't for me, but I'm actually having a lot of fun with it, weirdly enough. Um, Neon White, a really cool speedrunning game with some personality. I It's the only thing I bought m- for myself over the biggest shopping weekend of the year. Don't normally buy games, but... I had seen Neon White on a lot of people's favorite games of 2022 lists, and I was morbidly curious, so I bought it. It's a very good game. Very unique. Warzone. Rocket League. Neon White. I know I'm missing a ton of stuff. Well, there's Halo Infinite. Oh, we played Halo, and I played Persona, and I played Destiny again because... Halo made me really want to play Destiny again, so I booted up Destiny again. <laughs> All right. You had quite the active week of gaming. I did. I did. I, I did. I um yeah, we're playing Halo Infinite together. I'm going to talk about that for a minute. I I'm not in love with it. I really like Halo and I generally really like open world games but I don't think these two go well together. I mean, an open world game where you want to collect everything. Let's be honest. That's not really the thing you do when you want to play with friends. You just want to run and gun. It's so true. like if we were just shooting through the story, I think it'd be a little different. No, you're right about that. But the thing with an open world is a really good open world. Every bit of it is relevant. Like take red dead redemption. One of the best examples of an open world, like, Every city you go to is unique and has its own set of quests and and for the most part adds something. Whereas in Halo, we're running around killing the same enemies in slightly different bases and I don't even care why. I mean, other than getting to the next part of the story. Does that that make sense at all? You know, it kind of does when you put it in terms like that, but, you know, it could just all be a part of the strategy. Maybe. Now, with that being said, I'm enjoying it. I mean, I like Halo. It plays like a Halo. It's fun. I just, I think what I like the most about Halo, which is a really tight, well done up story, is just lost in the way they design the open world. That's, that's just, that's my take. So I'm not, not enjoying myself, but I'm just not in love with Dune as an, or Dune, Halo as an open world concept. That's all. But we will finish the story. We're, we're probably, what, a quarter of the way in? Maybe? I have no idea. I yes. don't remember. So I I maybe will have a very different <clears throat> opinion by the end. Let's be, let's, excuse me, let's be honest. Uh, uh, it could change a whole lot from now till then. And I have all intentions of playing it through with you guys and with others. I got invited to play with others. That will happen too. So 
probably after a few playthroughs, I may feel very different, but I, I, I yearn for the days of a tight dunes to dune <laughs> Halo storyline. Oh, brother. Well, Dave, uh, since you can't quite get Dune off your mind, no. I think we should probably get yeah. to talking about it because, you know, that is our episode of the day. Yeah. So, Dune, let's talk about it. Yeah. Dune. Dune, Dune, Dune. Well, of course, Dune is based on a novel, a famous book, and it was a trip to the Oregon. Oregon? What is it? It's Oregon, isn't it? People are gonna uh, blast me for that one. Anyway, it was a trip to the Oregon. It was a trip to the Oregon Dunes in 1957 that inspired Frank Herbert to write the epic science fiction novel titled Dune. It was here that Herbert observed the United States Department of Agricultural's at- agriculture's attempt at stabilizing the Oregon Dunes by planting poverty grasses to mold the dunes into place. And in case you're wondering. Poverty grasses are a type of grass that does not require much water. Um, they're designed for deserts and, and barren areas. In a letter to his literary agent, Frank wrote that the moving dunes could swallow whole cities, lakes, rivers, and highways. Separately from this, he began to write an article on the dunes titled, They Stopped the Moving Sands. He would never finish that article, but his research for it sparked an interest in ecology and deserts. So as these dunes coupled along a life-size fascination with the ideas of the superhero concept and messiahs, and then maybe helped along by psychedelic mushrooms, he was into that stuff. uh, These concepts all became the basis for a three-part serial named Dune World that he published in a monthly magazine called Analog from December of 1963 to February of 1964. Now, this three-part serial was worked together to become the first Dune novel. Now, in case you've never read it, and I know you haven't, I'm going to simplify what is honestly a really complex novel as as best as I can, so... Dune takes place on a barren desert planet. You already know this called Arrakis and Arrakis is the only source of a psychedelic drug nicknamed spice. That's where spice comes from. It's the only source of spice in the entire galaxy. Spice is very, very valuable, not only for its, well, specifically for its psychedelic, um, uh, psychedelic traits, because this allows people to travel interstellar space. Uh, the reason why is it allows them to have the force set necessary to do it. So spice equals interstellar travel. Very, very valuable. Now the world of Dune is a feudal society, you know, Kings and lieges and, 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 and my Lords and things like that. So there's a space emperor, as you said, and the space emperor can grant noble families certain, you know, and we would call it fiefs. It would have been lands in modern, like as we're used to. But in the case of Dune, it's planets. And to start the story, the family. So Dune follows a young man. His name is Paul Atreides. And his family is basically given the planet Arrakis uh, by the emperor to oversee it as stewards. And then all hell breaks loose. And then Dune as a book and as a series is paul's journey you know as 
things happen. And it's a really complex novel dealing with philosophy and religion and politics and all sorts of really cool stuff. Um, all sorts of really cool stuff. It's a really great novel. It was originally, like I said, a three-part serial, and it was put together as one novel called Dune, book one. And that novel was sent out to more than 20 publishers, all of whom rejected it. And then it was Sterling Lanier, an editor at Chilton Books. Yes, that Chilton Books, a printing house known best for publishing auto repair manuals. Rob, we pretty much grew up around Chilton Books. Uh, there are still quite a crap ton of them <laughs> sitting on the shelves in the garage. I see them every day. I'm out there. Uh, so, yeah, it's very interesting to know Chilton did this. Um, Ch- Chilton did do this. So an editor of Chilton Books was subscribed to Analog, stumbled across the Doom World serial, and after reading it, he loved it, and he urged his company to take a risk and publish Dune. Now... It wasn't like the only non-sci-fi or non-auto repair manual book that they did. They they had a non they had a non-fiction arm that did a few, but it it didn't amount to anything. Like this was this was the one. This was the one that really made that notable. So anyways, Chilton Books published the first printing of Dune in August of 1965. It didn't sell well. It wasn't well received by critics. They priced it at five sixty five, which is like fifty one dollars in in current money. Wow, I know, right? Yeah, it was a failure. Chilton actually considered the printing of doing a write off, and they fired Lanier as a result. Oof, oof, I know. And of course, now with uh, what fifty years, sixty, almost sixty years uh, beside us, we know that the initial reception of Duke was a fluke. Duke, Dune. Duke was a fluke. Dune was a fluke. The initial reception of Dune was a fluke. (laughs) Okay. Good job. The following year in 1966, it ended up winning the first ever Nebula Award, which is now one of the most prestigious awards for science fiction and fantasy authors. Was it at all a big deal when it won it? It was the first one. I mean, it was a big deal, but it was the first time it was ever given out. There's there's a difference between winning it for the first time and now winning it for the 60th year. You know what I mean? Actually, while you were saying that, because I did look it up, I wanted to look up Nebula Award winners so we can compare some other books that um, that had won. Uh, let's see. Flowers for Algernon. Ring World. Um, these are probably all books you're like what are these just wait on one I know Ender's Game okay yep Um, also Speaker for the Dead in that same series let's get to a little more modern than that Um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman has won that's a great book and a lot of great books in here those are going to be the ones you know maybe okay so, totally. a lot of a lot of really good a lot of really good awards have won uh, books have won nebula so um but it's specifically fantasy and and sci-fi so you know sometimes it's a little nuanced of a category anyway um dune has gone on to sell some 20 million copies it is easily one of the if not the world's best 
science fiction, best-selling, rather, science fiction novel. And it is frequently considered one of the greatest and probably the most influential science fiction novel of all time. Can't argue with that, right? Sure. So among these 20 million copies sold over the last 50-some years was at least one copy belonging to Martin Alper. Now, we've definitely heard that name before. Alper was involved with the development of Command & Conquer with Westwood Studios, which we learned all about in episode 109. He was also involved with Shiny Entertainment when it was developing Earthworm Jim, which we covered back in episode 113. He was the founder of Mastertronic, which later became Virgin Interactive. And most importantly, he was fascinated with Frank Herbert's Dune. As early as 1988, Alper had been trying to buy the interactive adoption rights to Dune, what they called video game rights back in the 80s. At first, he found that Dino D. Laurentis, the producer of the 1984 David Lynch adaption of Dune, had held the rights. But after that film, Dino's production company went bankrupt. So the rights, no one quite knew what was going on. Unfortunately, uh, in 1986, a few years earlier, uh, Frank Herbert had passed away and they were tied up in a big legal battle. All the rights to the Dune franchise, they were all tied up in legal battles because they had gotten so convoluted over the years that no one really understood who owned what. But eventually the legal system helped clear that up. And after after that happened, Alper found himself able to buy the rights from Universal Pictures in the spring of 1990. That's pretty cool, though, to be a fan of a book since you were young and then eventually find a way to buy the rights to to create based on it. Yeah, no, that is pretty incredible. I mean, Ah. granted, a lot of the stuff that I've been into has already had movies or books made of it, but, you know, would be pretty awesome to say, hey, that's because of me. Yeah, but people do that all the time. Like you figure anytime there's a movie based on a book. Someone said, I love this book and it had to go get the rights to it, you know? Very true. Uh, and I that's just such a cool concept to be in love with some form of art in some way to want to bring it into a new medium and to have the capability to go and make that happen is just pretty awesome. Indubitably, Dave. In July of 1990, a few months later, Alper attended a meeting set up for him. At this meeting, he was meeting a team of developers that were basically part of a failing French video game company and were looking for what's next. At the meeting, that team pitched three video game ideas to Alper, all of which had strong science fiction elements. Now, Alper was really inspired by what they brought and countered them with a proposal to adapt the Dune novel, which he owned the rights to, to a video game format. They agreed and began work on the project. So for the next six months or so, a team of developers who were mostly Dune fans worked on the foundation of their Dune video game. From time to time, they sent design documents to Virgin USA, which is Alper eventually became the president of, and Virgin executives were not in love with the game. At some point during this back and forth in an attempt to provide more framework to the project, that team gave themselves a name and a label 
They called themselves Cryo Entertainment. But late in 1990, there was a change in management in Virgin, and the new management threatened to cancel production of their Dune video game. Now, at this point, there were no signed contracts. The developers at Cryo Entertainment were terrified that they would lose all of their work. Now, truth is, that project was eventually salvaged, and we'll get back to that. But as this uncertainty was happening, American backers of the project, including Martin Elper, pulled out of it. And unfortunately for them, we know that Elper is the one who bought the electronic adoption rights, which he promptly took and brought to American video game developer Westwood Studios. Want, want, want. Want, want. Whatever could you mean, Dave? <laughs> now, let's talk. Let me. I, you, I'm going to remind you all about Westwood Studios. I'm going to run through an abbreviated history, but if you want to learn all about them in detail, we talked about them and their history while covering Command and Conquer back in episode 109. Westwood Studios got its start when Brett Sperry and Lewis Castle founded Brellus Software out of a suburban Las Vegas garage in 1985. A few months later, they changed their name to Westwood Associates. Later on in its history, they renamed themselves to Westwood Studios to better reflect the studio-like experience they were hoping to bring to their um, to, to, to the people. What's most important to know about them is that in 1991, they made it to the big games with a video game called Eye of the Beholder, which was published by a little company called Strategic Simulations Incorporated, or SSI. Now, SSI was both a video game developer and publisher. Uh, they existed from about 1979 to about 1994. During that time, they published well over 100 titles, mostly war games and adaptions of Dungeons & Dragons. They're also known for a very important series in the wargaming genre, Panzer General. Why I'm giving their background will become evident in a second. But Westwood partnered with SSI, and they created this really great Dungeons & Dragons game, I the Beholder, and it sold really well and earned Westwood a ton of notoriety. And as a result, Westwood was bought out by Virgin Games in 1992. Now, according to interviews, the concept for Westwood's Dune 2 game came separately from two different places and managed to converge into one video game. According to then-Virgin Interactive Vice President Stephen Clark Wilson, the development of Dune 2 was born out of Virgin's plan, as we know, to cancel Cryo's Dune game. But according to him, he was afterwards, or during rather, given the task of figuring out what to do with the Dune license. After reading the novel, he decided that, from the gaming point of view, that the real stress of it, the, the stress of the novel, was the battle to control the spice. So he thought that a resource-based video game based around the said spice would be a great idea. Now, at about the same time, another employee at Virgin Interactive, Graham Devine, introduced everyone to a real-time strategy game on the Sega Genesis called Herzog's Way. Now, Devine is yet another name that we've heard before. He would later go on to found Trilobite, which developed the seventh guest, which we covered back in episode 83. There's a whole lot of plugs today. 
Indeed there are. Holy hey, damn. Hey, the more episodes we do, the more people are going to be connected. It's 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 great the way this works. It's my favorite part. But before doing the seventh guest, the eleventh hour, and a whole bunch of other games I think are really cool, uh, he was just a little developer at Virgin, and he brought a, a second Genesis game called Herzog's Way to the office. Now, Clark Wilson described Zway as a game where the player, quote, clept kept clicking on stuff and then zooming off to another part of the screen it was very hard to keep track of what was going on as an observer still everyone liked it it had fast action and it was a strategy game now herzog's way to many is considered the first true real-time strategy game and in somehow as fate would have it clark and a few others discovered it and they brought it to westwood studios to talk to them about making a dune game similar to it and they agreed Westwood agreed to make a resource strategy game based on Dune and agreed to look at Herzog's way for ideas. Now, on the other hand, the founder of Westwood Studios, Brett Sperry, recalls that conceptualization for the game didn't start until Martin Alper brought them an offer to use the Dune license to produce a video game. Now, in terms of video game design, he said that the game was partly inspired from Populous, which we kind of talked about previously in the Peter Molyneux episode, partly from their game Eye of the Beholder, and probably most crucially, mostly, actually, from an argument he had with Chuck Krogel, who is the president of Strategic Simulations, which we just talked about, um, as the wargame-centric publisher that helped publish Eye of the Beholder. The crux of my argument with Chuck, he later said, was that wargames sucked, because of a lack of innovation and poor design. Chuck felt that the category was in a long, slow decline because the players were moving to more exciting games. I felt that the genre had a lot of potential. The surface was barely scratched as far as I was concerned, especially from a design standpoint. So I took that as a personal challenge and figured how to harness real-time dynamics with great game controls into a fast-paced war game. So they got to work on their Dune game with all these things in mind, only to find out towards the end of it, actually, that development on Cryo Entertainment's Dune was never actually canceled. And unfortunately for them, it finished first, which led to it, be, which led to it being published as Dune. And since this was another version game, this game was published as Dune 2 for no other reason that they finished second. It is not a sequel by any stretch of the imagination. It's a completely different game. It's just Dune 2. That is very odd. Isn't it? You don't hear a lot of that. I mean, it, there's literally no reason for it to be Dune 2. They literally only used the title because it came after the first game. And they were both they both came out in 92. Like, months apart. Um, And actually, the first game is like a click and point adventure game. Uh, and of course, we know this is a real time strategy. They're not even the same genre. They're 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 not even close. I mean, the first one is a retelling of the of this of the movie, basically. And this is like this is where the houses, the, the noble houses are fighting for spice. Like this is this is different. I don't know. I hadn't really heard of that before, but literally there's no reason to call it Dune 2. They just said, hey, this is the second Dune game we're publishing. So it's going to be Dune 2. Huh. I mean, just kind of weird. Uh, yeah, I had no idea that they were uh, not related. Yep. 
All right, so Dune 2, The Battle for Arrakis, The Building of a Dynasty, has one other subtitle I can't remember right now, but it went by a lot of subtitles. It's a real-time strategy game. Oh. It's it's uh, the granddaddy of real-time strategy games, along with Herzog's Way. In this game, you play as the commander of one of three interplanetary houses, all wrestling for control of Arrakis and the spice it contains. Now, Rob, you and I play a lot of real time. We haven't lately, but let's be honest. In our lives, we've probably played a lot of real time strategy, right? Eh, one or two. So it's fair to say we're probably intimately familiar with the genre. Terrible at it, but and I understand it. I okay, play it. Okay, fair enough. The basic strategy in this game is to harvest spice from the sand dunes using a harvester vehicle. Easy enough. Convert said spice into credits by refining it. Easy enough. And then using the credit to build a military to fight off the enemy. That sounds pretty tough. Does that sound like anything else? Uh, every other RTS. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Dune 2 was actually the first real-time strategy game in which resource gathering was necessary to fund unit construction. Aside from neighboring houses as enemies... The famous sand words from the book make sand worms, not words, sand worms from the book make an appearance. And there are other ways in which the harsh, harsh desert climates affect your gameplay. You had to build everything on concrete, for instance, and the desert would deteriorate your structure. So they had to be repaired or rebuilt. Huh. Speaking of which, this was the first real-time strategy to feature really simplified base and unit construction with a clear path forward. It was also the first game to feature a technology tree. As you completed higher missions, you were given authority. Authority? Nope. As you completed higher missions, you were given authorization to use more improved technology and weaponry. I can't even write my own read my own notes. What is this going on? And as part of as part of that, each house had unique unit types, its own tech tree and super weapons that came up as part of that. It's also the first RTS game to have unique unit types, tech trees, et cetera, et cetera. It's the first time that any game had mobile units that could be deployed as buildings, something we see a lot in that genre. And finally, on its list of firsts, as if there wasn't enough already. The Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive version was the first real-time strategy game to feature a context-sensitive mouse cursor used to issue commands. Now, if you don't know what that means, it means that your mouse would do something differently if you right-clicked on a building versus right-clicking on a unit, and something even more different if you left-clicked on a building versus a unit. So, first time we ever saw a mouse cursor work in such a way. Now, that's like every video game known to man. Indeed it is. Now, I mean, think about that. Literally, that's every damn video game. Yep. And Dune 2 was the first time we ever saw that, ever. Wow. Uh, So, I don't remember Dune 2. I never played it back when. I don't have experience from it back then. I did play it in the now. Um, It's dated. It plays like a real-time strategy game it's slow compared to modern real-time strategy games but i think i expected that going into it but it's a really fascinating exercise in what was and what is now 
if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I think it does. I always, I always like the history part, and this is definitely playing a piece of history. Now, I should point out it's pretty impossible to play it in its in its original form. They don't sell it on like Steam or or GOG or anything like that. Um, there's an open source uh, remake called Dune Legacy in which they've upgraded some of the they've done some quality of life improvements like you can click you can click on uh, multiple units in the modern one and you couldn't do that in the original but otherwise it's it's faithful aside from those little changes it's faithful to the the gameplay speed and feel of of the original and it's free so if you want to try this search for dune legacy the first thing that pops up is this open source um version that's available to anyone so yeah. yes indeed and that is what i think about it uh rob what did other people think about it well dave computer gaming world called this game a dark horse as its prequel was strictly a role-playing game it had a prequel well i guess that these people thought as many did that dune was the prequel to dune 2 yeah actually that's a good point i hadn't thought it that way so uh yeah no uh they do make mention of the superb superb graphics and sound saying it makes an enjoyable game experience as you take a ruling house in the dune universe and attempt to achieve dominance while some of the later scenarios tend to approach attritional warfare the overall style and flair of this program cry out for a sequel PC format said that Frank Herbert's epic saga made a disastrous translation into film, even with David Lynch at the helm. This fast and thrilling game, however, is a breathtaking success. Dune 2 takes a giant step in a genre which too often sticks to the tried and tested. It stands out. And game players had to say that this one might initially frustrate players accustomed to the leisurely pace of turn-based warfare, but there's no denying the fact that Dune 2 is crisp, fun and very well designed if you're a military tactics buff then you'll want to add this one to your collection you know that's a great that's a great point that i really hadn't considered yet um everything pretty much was turn-based because herzog's wave came out i mean not too long before this a year maybe two i can't recall and that's considered the first true real-time strategy game so war games before that were almost all they were all turn-based strategy so this would have been for a lot of people their first foray into real-time strategy and the thought of having to go from turn-based pace to real-time strategies pace that is a very good point you know herzog's sorry go go ahead ahead. i was gonna say i really hadn't thought of that myself i had really was wasn't considering like the paces of real-time versus turn-based and you're right it is definitely a whole different world now herzog's way was the what i was going to say is that the herzog's way was the first um true real-time strategy game but it is a concept it's closer to the moba genre than it is to what the real-time strategy genre became which they're kind of the same but it just it plays more like what we call now a moba than or an rts just a side note so and what's a moba dave mobile online multiple online battle arena what's a moba like league of legends in that the hell was that my phone i moved my phone across my keyboard 
Oh. <laughs> yeah, multiplayer online battle arena. You know, um, MOBAs are like League of Legends, Dota. Those are your big ones. Are the... uh, okay. Right? Those I, are the big I ones that people you, yeah. people play in esports, Dota and League of Legends. Yeah, Little. sure. Not your genre. It's not my genre either, so. I mean, I played League of Legends in college, but yeah, I'm not, not again, one of those ones I'm just kind of crap at, so. Yeah, Herzog, Herzog is more like that. Because all the elements that we think of real time strategy didn't weren't invented until Dune two, so a little fun, fun, fun little thing for you there. So, right on, Dave. <clears throat> well, we blew through those critic reviews. Let's get on down to some user reviews. So first up for Moby Games, we have user ET twenty six hundred, who mentions that anyone's first foray into the RTS genre was through Command and Conquer, Warcraft, Starcraft, or Total Annihilation totally missed out on dune 2 dune 2 defined the rts genre as it is best known today and was the most complex innovative and most importantly playable rts upon its initial release conventions in unit control unit production base building resource gathering and campaign structure have all evolved but still remain relatively unchanged in even games as contemporary as Warhammer 40,000 Dawn of War. Dune 2's gameplay should be familiar to anyone who's ever played any of post-Dune 2 RTS games. The gameplay itself is rather basic, but is wholly rewarding. Though the three factions are vastly similar with their basic units, subtle differences manage to distinguish the functions of each other's basic units and buildings enough to keep things interesting and replayable. In addition, the high-level units which each house can produce differ vastly in their tactical and strategic purposes. When replaying the game under a different house, the knowledge gained while playing with their previous house can be used in their new unit choices. Graphically, the game is colorful, and units and buildings are all distinctly and effectively rendered. I've read complaints that this game hasn't graphically aged well, but please keep in mind the game is considered stunning in 1992. This is also a more recent review, in case that weren't obvious from that statement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The sprites and animation all work well with the gameplay, with animations and indicators that respond respectively with the gameplay. Little details such as billowing smoke from highly damaged units or the primitively yet effectively executed rippling sands to show movement of the sandworms help immerse the player into the game's atmosphere. Dune 2 is a perfect example of converting an extensive, complex, and relatively unillustrated world with a devoted following into an effective, immersive gaming experience. Westwood, Westwood renders the Dune universe with pure sci-fi aesthetics by combining smart designs with the visionary grandeur imparted by both Dune's novels and film. The splash screens and cutscenes best exhibit this. Each is rendered to a very high standard, and each provides unique character to the respective houses while giving the player a schematic close-up of the Dune tech. The sound does leave a bit to be desired. It's mostly meepy floop sound effects, unless you had a decent sound card. But, it's some of the best meepy floop sound you'll ever hear. <laughs> True. Meep boop. Uh. <laughs> oh yeah, the computer sounds were way different. Oh, the high. I mean, you can do is still get some of them when you post and things, but you know. Being such an early incantation of the modern RTS, 
the game is not without its gameplay flaws. The enemy AI is just not up to snuff for certain tactics. Turtling is one of the tactics that the AI can't seem to overcome. Once turrets and rocket turrets, a player simply has to wall their base in and crank out units. This aspect removes a large portion of the game's challenge in later levels, but it's mostly assuaged by the fact that it's a rather fun tactic to take on, considering the AI is the only one that suffers. The AI also has a tendency to send path pathetically small attack squads against the average player's steadily growing attack and defense forces. The AI's forces get crushed pretty easily. Again, another product of being an early RTS game. The AI does ramp up towards the later levels. Unit obsolescence also runs rampant in Dune 2. A lot of the earlier units effectively become useless once you have access to units even one tier above them. I found heavy troopers to never be worth building at any point in the game. I could simply gun them down with trikes and mass. Once I could build quads, trikes became useless. Once I could build medium tanks, quads and everything below them became useless. Some units like the heavy tanks were totally useless since they were far outgunned by rocket tanks. Missions don't really vary much. They're either collect X amount of melange or destroy everything that's not the same color as you. Ooh, that hasn't aged well. <laughs> this flaw is again reconciled by the fact that the idea of more complex missions had not yet been introduced into this genre. They do finish review saying, I don't expect many to seek out the original Dune 2 and to install it onto a dinosaur unless they really, really wanted to know what people were feeling back in 92. However, I do recommend to any real-time strategy player worth his salt that he or she spend $10 for Dune 2000 to get a taste of it. So go out there and build your dynasty. So, fun things. He's not wrong about the AI. It could only send units in the direction that your base was in and was incapable of flanking. Oh, as they converted over to open source, they well obviously got into the code of the game. They found that the AI was capable of much more advanced tactics, but frequently got itself caught up in error loops that made it unable in the end to to do any complex maneuvers. So, yeah. Wow. So just some uh, errors in a line of code. It's it could have been one little letter, one syntax error. Yeah, Man, yeah. I mean, suck sometimes. I mean, yeah. The so so strategy, so strategy. So I mean, it was a strategy game that didn't have much strategy because you always knew where the enemy was coming from, and that makes it real easy to defend against. But hey, it was the first. Can't can't really complain that it was the first. Well, you can complain, Dave. And as always, we did manage to find one of those complainers. Yes, we did. So today we have Apo, and I'm probably going to butcher this, so this is my turn to butcher names, Apo Koivuniemi, who says that it was one of the first RTSs around. It's got decent music. Actually, the very best computer beeper sounds I've ever heard, and the MIDI sounds on real sound cards is not bad either. But next, it's got horrible graphics. They're horrible by today's standards, and they were horrible back when this game got released. Heavy tanks looked mostly like deformed pigs. And the computer AI is just about as intelligent as a brick. 
To counter this, it cheats massively. For example, it can place its buildings everywhere, even over your units. The units themselves are ridiculous. If a rocket tank that generally shoots in a 90 degree arc in front of it is the highest technology available, I'll start to cry. Game tactics, strategies, it's non-existent. Might require a little more thinking than the original Command and Conquer due to the fact that the missile turrets are so powerful. The amount of units and buildings is strictly limited, and especially on the last two levels, you are pounding both limits frequently. You cannot control more than one unit at a time, making a coordinated attack impossible. Oppo finishes it out by saying that if you really want to play every single RTS out there, then go for it. Otherwise, almost any RTS is better than this. In summary, worth absolutely nothing. Yeah. Lame. Except for that whole part that every other RTS built off of this one, but, you know, let's forget that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hey, he did say, though, that he heard the very best computer beeper sounds he ever heard. Yes, so there there still were some positives, but, you know, just very, very few. But uh, people really love the sounds. Well, there was a kind of a reason for that. This was actually the fir- one of the first PC games that used the uh, MIDI, M-I-D-I standard that it was just released about when this came out. It was one of the first games to utilize it. And that may not mean a lot of things to modern gamers, but back in the day, MIDI sounds were pretty revolutionary. That was where we got our music forever. So it's one of the first games to use MIDI, M-I-D-I. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone call it M-I-D-I until just now. That's it's always so MIDI. comfortable, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Can it's you tell us anyone uh, without looking it up what MIDI stands for? No, I can't. Actually, is it something? Um, I really genuinely don't know. What is it? Musical instrument digital interface. Nice. I'm impressed that you know that. I'm also embarrassed I didn't know that because I'm guessing we both took the same musical theory classes. I don't know. You took them in a lot sooner times. They probably didn't have a lot of the cool stuff they did when I was there. That's probably true. You know, we, we were we were writing songs on things a little more advanced than uh, stone tablets. <laughs> That's that, not a joke at your age. That That's hurt. public school funding. <laughs> we had MIDI keyboards at the time. It was new, but we had MIDI keyboards at the time. Oh, good Lord. That's That was a good joke. Wow, that one stings, actually. Oh, I need a well, moment. Well, better talk to the police on that. Ah, oh, ah, my ah, God. Ah, ah. All right, Dave. So tell us about the legacy. Well, I mean, it's really hard to understate its importance, right? Uh, no. We, yeah, that's very true. It's not hard at all. There's no doubt that countless RTS games have found inspiration in its game mechanics. And if you really look into it, and this is sad in many ways, this genre hasn't changed much from these core mechanics. I mean, how can it? Uh, Yeah, we've made them more complex, but we're really still here. I mean, let's be honest. I asked you when we started, I described the game and you said, hey, that's every real time strategy game. It is actually, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, no, it seems that if this were the first, it started a trend, and uh, that trend has just taken off. You know, we have games that 
balance more resources to make them complex or create trees where you have to you know like total annihilation where you have to balance out energy and and electricity so you have to balance resources as opposed to just gathering like warcraft came around and age of empires came around and suddenly it was about gathering as much wood and gold and then steel and stone as you could so it just added more resources and more gathering and more complexity but at the base of it really this is it gather a resource turn it into currency use the currency to buy units to fight battles that's that's the whole genre and it started here with dune 2 you know we talked briefly about this game before in our command and conquer episode command and conquer which popularized this genre was literally made from a wish list of things that they couldn't include in this game so it's important for that reason the same team built command and conquer so all the things that they learned from making dune 2 and then of course all the things they couldn't do are what command and conquer are so it's incredibly important for that reason um and then after command and conquer this genre was on the up and up until it wasn't i don't think it's nearly as relevant these days i enjoy it i look let's when's the last time a really solid rts has come out though ah you know what someone's gonna be like dave you've missed x y and z so no we're not gonna do that no we are gonna do that you open the door when's the last time a really good rts has come out i wait i would argue before anyone says anything that real-time strategy has given way to forex strategies that's that's my argument i don't think the strategy genre is dead i think specifically this rts genre is just not as relevant because all your big games are forex survivals in fact there is a dune game that was just released earlier this year that went into early access in like april or may called spice wars that is literally the same concept it's all of the houses fighting for the spice and it is a four-time strategy game. So there you go. Even 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 the series that inspired the granddaddy of the real-time strategy genre who's moved on to its more complex version 4X. But as it pertains to Dune 2, they made some other versions of it. Um, I already told you that you can't really find this version on stores. You can find it for Dune Legacy, so don't forget that. Go to Dune Legacy. But that one person in the one review mentioned Dune 2000. Now, Dune 2000 was a remake of this game that they published in 1998 for Windows. It told the story using full motion video. Um, It has the guy who plays Gimli in The Lord of the Rings and said full motion video. Wink, wink. Nice. Jonathan Reese. Rice? Rice. I think it's Rice. Um, But aside from that, there's nothing special about the the game. It wasn't re reviewed very well it was it was mixed reviews it was honestly what it was is it wasn't that big of an upgrade from this for a lot of people so by 98 it was really kind of drab and bland however you want to describe it Um, in 2001 they released an actual sequel to to dune and dune 2000 it was called emperor battle for dune and that game was received fairly favorably actually also uses full motion video and just kind of built upon what this one had done in case you're wondering, because I don't know if we'll ever have a reason to talk about uh, this ever again, there are other games that take place in the Dune universe. Uh, in 2001, 
Cryo also released another action game. So just like they did back in 92, where they released their own game alongside the real-time strategy, they did so in 2001. Their 2001 game called Dune was actually based on a sci-fi miniseries that was based on the book, uh, and that game was a complete flop. In fact, Cryo Entertainment went bankrupt soon after they released it. Uh, wah, wah, wah. Um, and then, aside from the game that came out earlier this year, we found out a little bit after that, in like August for Gamescom, that a company called Funcom is actually working on an open-world action survival MMO that's set in the, the Dune universe. It's set on Arrakis, and it's called Dune Awakening. And aside from a tease we got of someone on a big desert planet with a sandworm, we don't know much about it. Don't have a release date, don't even really know anything about the game. So um, so I'm, I'm guessing they're working on that. Rob, you said that there's going to be a second Dune movie. That is correct. Um, they split the novel the first dune novel into um into two movies and we did get the first one um but they are working on the others Uh, in case you didn't know the series has six books in it there were five sequels that herbert wrote to the dune book and yeah it's just gone on and on and on from there to big big movies honestly the movie that came out was it last year? It was a good movie. It was a good um, adaption of the book. I, I I was a latecomer to Dune. I read it a couple years ago, maybe a pandemic series for me. It had been recommended to me over and over and over again because I'm a huge sci-fi fan, and somehow I missed the biggest sci-fi book on the face of the earth. So I will totally admit to the fact that I was a latecomer, but I'm glad that I've had a chance to read it. It is a very fascinating, um, fascinating series that, like I said, deals with politics and religion and ecology and technology and human emotions and all sorts of, you know, noble, noble families fighting for control of resources. It's, it's just a lot of really cool stuff all wrapped up into one. So go read the books. If you're into that kind of thing, go play the game. Whether or not that's the old one or the new one, you can do both. It's up to you. I'm not the owner of you. Whatever you want to do. But it's hard to deny that this game's legacy um, is, is spreads out wide and far. And the book's legacy is even bigger. So yeah. Like I said, most important thing it did is it gave us Command & Conquer, Rob. And if you want to learn more about Command & Conquer, we did it in, uh, I don't know, what did I say, episode 103, something like that. I'm not sure which episode, but Rob, where can they find out which episode we did it on? Well, Dave, that information can be found at www.memorycardlane.com. That is correct. Also on Memory Card Lane, we put up a calendar of our upcoming episodes if you'd like to see what we're covering next and chime in. Uh, we have our biographies. We have a link to our Discord if you would like to um, speak your piece to us directly. And, of course, our social media tags, plugs, however you want to say them, can be found on Memory Card Lane as well. I am on various platforms as David is wrong. Rob, where can people find you on social media these days? I am on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. 
All right. Now, with that being said, let's go back to the beginning. Each week, we like to teach you something relevant to the current week in gaming history. Can be a game, can be a person, can be a topic. Doesn't matter. It's got to be relevant to this week. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about it. Maybe something new about its inspiration, what it took from the world. Or maybe something new about its legacy, what it gave back to the world. One of the best parts about bringing you this podcast week in and week out is that we get to learn things as well. And so this is our opportunity to tell you what we learned. Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I think my favorite fact of all of this had to be that the first publication of Dune came from Chilton. I was so excited when I learned that because that was new for me, too. I was so excited when I learned that that I ran out of my office to tell my wife. (laughs) That is incredible. (laughs) Because it is so weird to me that those books and, and look. Ladies and gentlemen, I, we don't talk about it, but we grew up in a garage. Our dad was a mechanic, is a mechanic, uh, and you know now a garage, a, a shade tree mechanic. So we grew up in a garage, and said garage has shelves upon shelves of Chilton manuals for various vehicles. We grew up surrounded by Chilton auto repair manuals. So to find out that they published things that weren't auto repair manuals one is amazing and two to find out that they were the publisher that took a chance on the most famous sci-fi novel of all time that was pretty mind-blowing to be honest with you so yeah no i'm, I'm with you 100 percent on that i never would have even imagined at all <laughs> of all the things that was 100 percent my favorite thing too so we're just gonna leave it at that because i think that was pretty cool All right, Rob. Well, before I take it out of here for the week, is there anything that you would like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I want to take a very quick second to say thank you to everyone. We love you. Or not. Don't be weird. It's kind of weird. It is. Yeah, what he said. All right. Well, (laughs) next week, next week, next week, Rob, we're going back to the beginning of the Soul Calibur franchise. And we're going to take a look at its first installment, Soul Edge. Ooh, edgy. (laughs) Born out of the desire to create a weapon-based fighting game, Soul Edge eventually birthed a franchise that has sold over 17 million copies worldwide. And we're going to talk all about it. So join us again next week as we fight to the death on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Scooby-doop-dup-dup-moo-doop-moo-doop.